Philippians 1 is where we are going to be. All right, I want to see a raise of hands as an actual question with an actual answer. But if you have ever dreamed of flying, would you raise your hand right now if you've dreamed of flying before? Okay, you know what's funny? My eyes just landed on a pilot. He dreamed of flying, and so he decided to fly. Um, But I'm thinking of just the ability to fly, like take off from where you are and fly around. Um, turn to someone right next to you and, and tell them where you would fly if you had the ability to fly right now. Tell someone an answer to that. <clears throat> you answer it how you want. All right. So birds, of course, not all birds, but most birds have the ability to fly. They get to sort of leave the captivity of gravity because of how they're designed. And they get to go and they have the the coolest views flying around. Uh, You ever wonder if a bird appreciates the view that they have? I'm not sure that they do. Like we, we would see that and go, that'd be so cool to be up there and sort of see what that looks like. Um, being a bird gives them really, really cool views, but it comes with a cost. So every last bird is a bird brain. And a bird brain, I'm not sure really where this came from, but a bird brain is an insult. So don't call someone a bird brain unless you're trying to insult them. It means they don't have a lot of intelligence. I got to witness firsthand the, the ability of a bird to fly and the fact that all birds are bird brains this last year. I came home from lunch one day and uh, was walking into my house, and we have two birds, and one of, my, one of the birds, actually both birds really like me, but one particularly likes me, and he heard me at the door, because I knocked, I said, hey, Beck, it's me, and as we opened the door, about this far for me to get in, bird brain flew right out the door, and this is a cockatiel, is that what kind of bird he is? Okay, I don't even know what kind of bird he is. We're not like on, we're not like on mutual relational terms. I'm one of his favorite people. He's not necessarily one of my favorite animals, but don't tell him. Um, but he went flying out and it was terrifying because he's never been outside before. He's a, uh, a bird that's supposed to remain indoors and he goes flying out and he does this giant arcing circle over the street, over the neighbor's house. And me, I just yelled help. Me and Becky ran out and we're out here like this, trying to give him like a perch to land on. He did one sweeping turn like this, flew over our house, and then we never saw him. So we're calling for him, calling for him. We're going, oh my goodness, this is really, really bad. Um, And so he is up there. Now imagine what's going through, his name's Riptide. Imagine what's going through Riptide's brain. He's a bird brain, remember that. So he goes flying out, freedom! And then he goes, wait, freedom! Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He had the perfect view. Think about this. He had the perfect view. He had the lay of the land. He could see where everything was, but he couldn't even get himself home. And sometimes we get lost and we think if we could just see what was coming, if we could just see sort of where we are, we could get ourselves home. But just like Riptide, Honestly, we're bird brains when it comes to that. We think if we could just know what's around the corner, we think if we could just see what's going on better, we would be able to figure our life out. Here's the reality. Riptide needed help getting home. Now, I didn't think about it at the time. I was just trying to get this bird home. But it was 
a fairly miraculous story. It was prayer that led Riptime back to our house. Uh, to the point where, like, for a couple of days, for like, I don't know, I think a couple of days, I'm driving in my Jeep. We read online uh, that you can find your bird by playing cockatiel sounds because they're drawn to a pack. So pumping up the volume on my Jeep with no doors, no roof, and I'm cruising around our neighborhood like little bird sounds, and I'm calling for Riptide, and I'm just driving going, there's no way this is going to work. And people are out walking their dogs going, like, I don't even know what to make of this guy. Talk about a bird brain. Um, I bring all of this up because of this. Here's, here's my title this morning. Here's where I'm going with this is um, there's something better than sort of getting a bird's eye view. And we've already been singing it. We've actually already been singing some of the ideas that are found in this passage. The better is that uh, we get to be um, seeing as God sees. So God's the one who made the birds and sustains birds and has way better than a bird's eye view. He sees it all from beginning to end. We've already covered in this letter, Philippians, that he who began a good work in you, he's the one who's faithful to complete it. We're already saying you're always working. Even if I don't see it, even if I don't feel it, I trust it that you're working right here today in this moment. So God uh, has told us something really, really amazing. God has told to us, he's a speaking God, a communicating God, and he has actually told us that he wants us talking for him. That's a pretty amazing thing, that God, the speaking God, says something amazing to us. I want you to speak for me. That's pretty incredible. Who said this? You will be my witnesses. Who said that? Jesus. Okay, if you're ever confused in church, throw out Jesus. It's probably true. It's right in this case. It's Jesus. This is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's about to ascend back up into heaven. And he says, you will be my witnesses. Wherever you go on planet earth, you will be my witnesses. Every single day of your life, Christian, this is a true statement. In our orientation series, who are we? One of them is that we're ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. And so with urgency and passion and all that we can muster, we say to people around us, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's what an ambassador does. It ties into this idea of you will be my witnesses. Now, this is pretty simple. It's pretty simple in in, in this sense. Jesus loves me, this I know. When you sing that song or communicate that simple message, did you know that you're being a witness for Jesus? It's pretty simple. You don't have to complicate this. So keep doing that. I think that's really good that you do that. That's a great starting point. And I think it's something we return to as adults again and again. God, bring me back to the simple message. Jesus loves me. This I know. But life gets more complicated, and sometime when you open your mouth and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, you're going to have someone ask you, how do you know that's true? The Bible tells me so. (laughs) Boom! That's exactly right. That's the answer. For the Bible tells me so. That's how. So when someone asks you back a question like that, 
that's going to that's gonna sometimes complicate it in your mind. Here's where it gets even more complicated. Sometimes you go through things where you begin asking yourself that question. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you're asking your own self, is that really true? God, are you there? Can I trust this message? So as life gets complicated, sometimes becoming a witness and what it looks like to be a witness for Jesus changes and grows and complicates. God does love us. And one of the ways that God tells us so is he shows us by showing up. So part of the Acts 1-8 passage is this. You will be my witnesses and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is predicting an event that church history calls Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down on the believers. And this is the series we went through in the book of Acts. And this tagline still is so powerful to, to me, which is we have the power. Finish the mission. We're witnesses. If God has you breathing here, everyone take a breath. All right, everyone made it through that exercise. We're all alive. Good. Every single person here then. Every single person has a role in this. We have the power. What's it for? It's to finish the mission. It's to keep being his witnesses. We're in this series called Oceans of Joy. It's actually a letter from a pastor to a church in Philippi. We call it Philippians in our Bible. And it's all about joy, which is kind of curious because he's writing it from prison. Kind of powerful. And sort of the mental image I want you to think about is this. We've been talking about the idea that happiness is a little bit like how we experience the ocean from the shoreline at the beach. In other words, happiness comes and goes in sort of big spurts and small spurts that we're not necessarily in control of. The tide brings the ocean in or out. And if all we knew of the ocean is what we experienced on the shore, we would forever be enjoying it when the tide is up and we have lots of ocean to splash around and play around. But then it recedes. It always recedes, doesn't it? Our happiness comes and goes. Our happiness is dependent on circumstances, many of which we're not in control of. But here's the mental image I want you to experience or think about. If that's happiness, then joy is the actual ocean. We're not in danger of the ocean running out. In fact, it's actually the oceans of the planet. There are oceans of joy available to us in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Oceans. That means that no matter what the tide is doing, no matter how it's coming up or how it's coming down, we don't need to fear that. We don't need to try to cling to the water while it's up and build little things and try to hold the water and keep on to our little bits of happiness. There's enough joy for us to go and just float in for the rest of our life. It will never run out. And so tapping into that and seeing what that's about is what we're talking about. Here's what I want to do today. Today, I want to talk about three aspects of what it means to be a witness for Jesus, but it it may be a little different than what you're thinking of. Witnessing or evangelizing sort of brings up a whole mental image, and I hope this morning's text will sort of expand that for you into some greater things. What we see from Paul is uh, an example in Scripture that he lays out that kind of points the way for us as Christians to walk in. So, uh, Eli, why don't you come on up? I've asked Eli to come and be my helper this morning, and uh, give me these three. Um, 
How many of you think you could do this with a ball? Raise your hand. Yeah? You, you pretty confident? All right. How about on stage under the lights in front of a bunch of people? All right. A little bit more nervous, but you could do it. All right. Two. Some of you could do two, maybe. If you're Steph Curry, you could do like seven. All right. You could do that. Now, three takes a little bit of practice and coordination, right? It's something you got to work out a little bit. How many know how to juggle? Okay. How many have tried juggling? All right. How many have tried unicycling? Okay. They're sort of in the same class. They're kind of hard to do, but they're, they're doable. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to watch Eli take three things, and the three things that he's taking are not all exactly the same. And as he juggles, he's juggling three things kind of at the same time, but at a little bit of a different time. And as he juggles, um, I'm going to keep talking. Okay. Can you multitask? All right. So he's just going to juggle while I talk. And um, very good, Eli. Um, so being a witness, you're actually juggling things all the time. You have various factors happening. Once in a great while, things set up where you're able to talk about Jesus in a really, really comfortable way. But my experience is that sometimes things happen that, that kind of throw you off a little bit. And when they throw you off, you know what? You just pick things up again and you say, no big deal. Like, I'm not here for my happiness. And my, wow, that was pretty good. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep going. And, uh, you know, sometimes I drop the ball to be true. Sometimes I lose the ball under the third row. Uh, and when that happens, I just go find it and I pick it back up and I just keep juggling. And there are seasons where this comes really naturally and kind of flows. And other times it's kind of hard. But whenever I stop, whenever I drop, I just pick it up again and keep going. Would you give it up for Eli? That was a good job, buddy. So being an effective witness isn't just these three things. But when I studied this passage and looked at it, I thought, wow, these are, these are actually three aspects that we all need to be growing in and all need to be cultivating. Um, and, and even though there's actually spiritual gifting attached to some of those balls that we're going to look at, um, it's actually for every single Christian to be doing this, and it takes <clears throat> some practice. Let me just say this, too. This morning is not really a how-to on each of these. Rather, I want to I just sort of shine the spotlight on three categories of what it means to be a witness and how to grow up in that. Um, and the how-to is going to come um, from other places, other sources. You're going to be reading scripture. You're going to talk to your community group. You're going to go, I heard that, but how do I actually do that? I want you to notice as you take notes, take notes, by the way, it's a great way for someone with an active mind to stay engaged in these next 30 minutes. So just go, let me write this down so I can stay engaged, okay? Um, but as you write these down, notice that all three of these are verbs. A verb is something that you do, something you walk in, something you practice. So all three of these are something that you do. As we read this passage in first, uh, in Philippians chapter one, I want you to notice this. Paul is, <clears throat> he's translating the events of his life and then he's testifying about them. Okay. That's the first thing I want you to notice, uh, starting in verse three. In fact, if you want to write sort of a central truth down, this is going to capture all three T's right here. Ready? Translate your life, testify what you discover, and keep on testing what you're learning. I'll say it again. This isn't on the screen this morning, making it work. Translate your life, 
Testify what you discover and keep testing what you are learning. All right, verse 12 in chapter 1 says this. Paul writing from prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord of my, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All right, so if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, jot this down. First one is this, translate your life. So in other words, write down and think about and ponder what's really going on in my life. Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What Paul's doing here is he's translating his circumstances. To many, Paul's life doesn't look like he's going so well. You know what happened to Paul? He's in prison for turning his life around. He used to persecute people, physically assault people, defending a lie. He's now seen the light, and he's now lovingly, patiently enduring physical suffering for defending the truth. That's what's going on in Paul's life. And you know where it lands him? Prison. Congratulations, you get put in a jail cell. That's the circumstances of Paul's life. But this isn't how Paul sees it. Why is that? It's because he's translating current events through a different lens, sort of a different criteria than most people look at their life. Remember that Paul is writing this to let others know how he's doing because he's concerned for their concern. I want you to imagine uh, that if you had to wait 24 hours every single time you texted someone, every single time you posted anything on social media, you had to wait a full 24 hours to get any response whatsoever. Some of you would be a nervous wreck. Are they going to heart my post? Will anyone like it? Where are my followers at? And as you text something, you're just dying for a quick response. You know, it's funny. Now we have the ability to see that someone is texting back, like that, those little like dots that are sitting there. And if you wrote something that you really want an answer, haven't you ever sat there and be like, come on, let's go. And then what's interesting is if it's only a couple of words, you're like, what were they writing? But then they're like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say it that way. I'm going to say it this way. Imagine waiting 24 hours. You had to send a message, wait 24 hours before you heard back from something. What Paul is doing is this. He heard that they heard that he was being roughed up and in prison. And he wants to tell them, he wants to assure them, hey, it's all, it's all okay. Things are good. But he has to use the postal system, like snail mail. He has to mail a letter. He has to get a mail out. But it's not even as good or efficient as our mail. So it's just going to take a really, really long time. That's what this letter is all about. There's something else going on in this paragraph and in this letter, and this paragraph shows us what it is. It is an ongoing conversation. In a sermon talking about this, we said, don't ghost God, like uh, Spider-Man does to Nick Fury. Don't ghost Nick Fury. If you wouldn't do that, don't ghost God. Don't try to avoid the conversation with him. Keep in conversation with God. 
I love this quote by Richard Foster. I read this this week. He said this. He said, examine the pattern and fabric of your life. So not if, but when things happen that are hard and confusing, talk to God about it. Jesus' invitation is ask and seek and knock. And the way the language says is this, ask and keep on asking and don't ever stop asking. Knock and keep on knocking and don't stop knocking. Seek and keep on seeking and don't ever stop seeking. That means we never grow out of this. No one reaches maturity where they have to stop asking, seeking, and knocking. Translate your day. Translate your week. Translate your life. Now, this translating is usually not neat and tidy. We often find ourselves lost in translation. Let me give you a, a personal illustration, and then I'll give you a biblical one. I thought I was going to be an architect. I sort of had two paths in front of me. One was to be a youth pastor. One was to be an architect. And the the door was closed to expensive Christian college. So I went after architecture. As I went after architecture, uh, things were going really, really well until they weren't. And God closed the door in a really clear way that involved 44 stitches across the top of my head and flunking out of my first full year of the architecture side of my education. What happened in that time is that I came to the realization that God has me alive still and around for a reason. And so I was just laid up for a month. In fact, I was laid up for a month with my head like life for people. We should translate as well. All right, let's move on to testify. Translating takes time, by the way, which I'd imagine in jail you have plenty of. But also takes patience and trust, which comes from the character that only God provides. We want quick answers and quick fixes. God doesn't seem to be in a hurry in my life most of the time. But notice what Paul does. He doesn't keep it to himself. He translates what's going on. Here's what's really going on. It's, It's advancing the gospel. But then he testifies about it. So number two, if you're taking notes, just jot this down. Testify. Speak up. Speak out. Say out loud with your mouth, this is what's actually going on. Verse 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers. Verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the entire prison, what's going on. And verse 18, he says, only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Go back to Jesus saying, you disciple, every believer that ever lived, you will be my witnesses. That's a really telling marching order for us. Paul showing us what this looks like. I love how equal opportunity Paul has always been about testifying. He'll testify to friends of the cross. He'll testify to enemies of the cross. He'll testify to those who are totally confused about the cross. I love that. I want to model my life after that. God, give me opportunities to testify in these different spheres. Why is he in prison in the first place? Because he was just living out this identity. You will be my witnesses. Paul says, okay, that means I'm going to talk about Jesus. That landed him in jail. He wants fellow Christians to know that the gospel progress is happening. How inspiring to know that the love of Jesus is motivating Paul and changing lives. We get this all the time as part of what testimonies are about. We see God working in hard things and we, we say, God, maybe, you're, maybe you are working in this. I see that coming true in someone else. 
How is it that all the guards know that Paul is in prison for following Jesus? Because he's a witness. He's a witness to get him in prison. He's a witness while he's in prison. There are some really specific things he mentions about the hard thing that's going on. In our community group a couple weeks ago, someone pointed out this. You know, he, in writing to them, he had some really hard things go on, like being dragged into prison. But as he thinks about Philippi and he thinks about the people and what he wants to communicate to the church, he isn't triggered by Philippi. He doesn't go back and recount just all these hard things and like, I'm just barely making it through. God has completely redeemed the experience to say, here's how I remember it. Without a raise of hands or anything, how many of you have gained insight from the whole COVID quarantine season that we went through? I hope with a little bit of time passing, you actually can look back on it and see more clearly and say, you know what? There, there are things about that that I, that I see God having worked in. Instead of just going back to, oh, that was just so awful. We had to all wear masks and stay indoors. Paul isn't coming back triggered about all the hard things and recounting them and needing support. No, instead he's saying, man, here's what really was going on. Let me tell you about it. Just plainly talk about it. It's amazing that he connects these dots of the good things that are happening. Here's number one, the the gospel is advancing. He doesn't give much clarity around that, but he says that. Good conversations are happening in the halls of a prison. That's kind of an amazing thing. And then courage is contagious. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's telling the church, don't feel bad about me. I'm not feeling bad about me. God's working in this. Isn't this so other-centered? Isn't this so like just like world gospel motivated uh, kind of speech to say, man, I, yeah, of course things are hard. Like we, we, we can read into that. He doesn't linger on that though. He wants to point out all these good things that are going on. I'll tell you, this kind of testifying requires, I don't know of any shortcut to it. It requires reflection examination and prayer and pursuit. It requires starts and stops again, just like juggling. You're juggling. It seems to be going fine. I know how to juggle. Whoops. No, I don't. Let me go find it over here. There's all kinds of starts and stops. There's waiting that goes on. And you just go, Lord, I trust that you are working even when I can't see that. I trust that you are working even when I can't feel it. In fact, I'm going to lend my voice on Sundays to sing that very truth. And in your time, you'll show me what you need to show me. If you're a Christian, testify. Open your mouth and talk. St. Francis of Assisi is quoted by a bunch of people that says, preach the gospel at all times. Anyone know how this, this quote ends? Use words if necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Now, I have used that quote in a sermon But increasingly, I think that is the call of the cowards. I'm preaching the gospel at all times. When it's necessary, I use words. Now, hear me really, really clearly. There is a time when silence is golden. And if what is meant by that quote by St. Francis of Assisi is that your life better back up your words, I'm all in. But I think most of us, myself included, 
have a hard time speaking up and speaking out the way that someone who is a witness is supposed to do. Now, again, I mentioned this at the beginning. Witnessing brings up all kinds of ideas and emotions. Let me see if I can read your mind a little bit. If I ask the question, are you witnessing this week? I bet your mind might be flooded with a whole bunch of ought to's and should have's and all kinds of things that may sort of like heap molasses guilt on you. And if I said, hey, are you witnessing? I bet like a third of the room would just like avert the eyes and go like this. Here's what I hope. I don't want to relieve gospel pressure where there should be pressure, but I want to alleviate, take away pressure that is maybe from the flesh, maybe from sort of other people's standards and whatnot. If every single person in this room is supposed to be a witness, and every single one of you lives in a different place, part of the neighborhood, different kinds of jobs, different talents, it stands to reason that there's a whole bunch of kinds of ways to witness. So track with me. I want to sort of like expand our mind a little bit to keep thinking about what that ought to look like. There's something that witnesses all have in common. Think about a court of law where you go and you are a witness. You're called to the witness stand. Your Honor, I'd like to submit uh, Exhibit A, and I'm going to call Mr. Rich Henderson to the witness stand. Rich would stand up. He would come. You know what he would do? He would place his hand on a Bible and swear to what? To tell the truth, the whole truth, and what? And nothing but the truth. Here's what's really interesting. We live in kind of a godless county, my opinion. But there's still some sense that we ought to place our hand on a Bible. And say, there's a law, there's something proceeding over all of what's going on here that's more than just subjective. Rich, you better tell the truth. That's what, that's what this is saying. You said out loud, you vowed to tell the truth, the whole truth. Now, now Rich would come over and he would sit down or, or go over to a witness stand and questions would begin to be asked of him. Every single witness has these three things in common. Here's number one. No witness knows it all. There's no such thing as a know-it-all witness. You do not have all of the answers. Christian, take a deep sigh of breath. You don't know it all, and you never will. Some of you are really good at increasing in knowledge, like far above the rest of us. You just have a mind that's incredible that way. But no one knows it all. Here's another thing. No witness needs to sell the ideas and, and, and things they're talking about. You don't need to be a used car salesman like selling your ideas. You are simply bearing witness. You're talking about what you saw, what you think, what you experienced, what you said, what you heard. So no witness knows it all. No witness needs to sell what they've uh, been doing. And here's the third thing. Ready? Catch this. All witnesses have something else in common. They all speak up. Imagine Rich going and saying, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? He says, I do. He comes over. He sits down. Uh, Rich, where were you on the night of March 2nd, 2000, whatever, 23? And Rich gets up, and in an animated way, he goes, and he just starts miming, right? Like, he's just acting out what he's doing. Now, here's the foolish thing. Not speaking is considered kind in some circles. I want to be kind to people, and I don't want to say things that might offend them, so I'm going to not speak up. 
I believe Rich might be held in contempt of court. In other words, he'd be breaking another law by not just speaking up. The judge surely would slam his little thing down and say, speak, man. I heard you swear in. I know you have a voice. Talk to us. So when you translate your life, you testify by speaking out. Miming or staying silent is not humble or considerate. It's just confusing. Now hear me clearly. Again, there's, there are times when silence is golden. And sometimes Christians talk too much. Or they talk about the wrong things. But as we stand before the Lord and just say, God, I want to open my mouth for you and testify to your goodness. God will answer that prayer and give you opportunities. God's plan for saving the world It's witnesses who testify what's really going on. Let me say this. There's no formula that will get you here. And anyone who tells you different about how to witness in sort of this formulaic way is either ignorant, they don't understand, or they're trying to sell you something. This is where a personal walk with the Lord and, and taking stock of the setting and the people that are in front of you is important. All right, Jesus loved us by speaking up. He cared by explaining in ways that we could understand what's really going on. Here's my favorite. The kingdom of heaven is like. What is the kingdom of heaven like according to Jesus? Anyone remember some of the things that he used? What do we got? A mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like. A child's faith. What was the other one? A pearl of great price. That's right. We can remember these. Jesus took it and just said, it's kind of like this. So Jesus cared for us by not only translating, but by testifying. Go and do the same. All right, here's the last one. Learning to translate your life with a God eternity lens is an ongoing skill. Remember, it takes, takes some skill to do this. How do I juggle all of these? Which, which one am I supposed to be doing? But then testifying to what you're seeing. Okay, I got it. Here's the one more really important thing we see from this, and here it is. Test the teachers. Test the teachers. I want to read this last part of the passage this morning. And as I do, I want you to listen really carefully. You can just look at it. You have your Bible open. For two groups of people doing similar things, but from different motives. Philippians 1.15 says this. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You got it? There's the some, and then there's others. Two groups of people both preaching Christ. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Then he says something really curious to me, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul knew something that you should know too. Not everyone who names the name of Jesus is the same. Not everyone who says they're a Christian really are a Christian. Not all teaching is on equal footing, even if they open a Bible and read Bible verses. This is really, really important to get. It's important parents to teach your children this. Oh, they're a Christian. Really? Like, let's talk about that. What does that mean? How do we know that that's true? Anyone else find it strange that Paul is okay 
with these people teaching and proclaiming Christ, even though he knows it's from selfish ambition, from rivalry, and from envy? Does that seem weird to anyone else? I, I was just messing, I was just like looking at this from every angle going, how is that true? Why is that true? You guys can discuss it and come to the real answer in community group. Here's what I came up with. I thought about this. It's not because Paul is shy about confronting hard things. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They were believing a different gospel. Paul's not a shy guy. I confronted Peter to his face. Why? Because he was pulling away. He was acting contrary to the gospel. It's not because Paul was shy. That's not it. It's also not because this doesn't matter. He says, if anyone comes and preaches to you a different gospel than the one that you received, even myself or an angel, let them be cursed. This matters immensely. Why did Paul confront Peter to his face in a big public setting? Because it mattered deeply. So it can't be because Paul is shy and avoids hard conversations. It can't be because, well, it doesn't really matter what we teach. I think there's a third option. Paul knows the power of the gospel. Paul knows the power of the gospel message. I think what was being taught was actually spot on. You can get the gospel right and be wrong in your motives. You can get the gospel right and be wrong in some of your example of that. I think Paul had such faith in the gospel message going out that he knew that God could work through that. If the gospel was off, by the way, which there is no other good news, no other gospel, no other way of salvation, he would have confronted it. But instead he says, I'm going to rejoice if it goes out in pure love or whether it goes out from selfish ambition. I love that Paul was known what he was for, not what he was against. This is so huge. Church, what if you as a Christian are just, it's just known who you're for. Some people would take this test, the teacher, and their whole life and every testimony is always about who's wrong. That gets really draining, by the way. It's good to test the teachers, but Paul doesn't cancel these people just because they're off in some other minor things. He's saying, you know what? They're preaching the gospel. I'm going to let that go for right now. Even though they're trying to inflict harm on me. I'm, I'm okay with that. Jesus spent much time testing the teachers. Did you know that? Book of John really captures this. We actually saw this in, in, in Acts a little bit too. But he spends all kinds of time going to the synagogue and arguing with the teachers. The teachers are testing him. He's testing them right back. So Jesus is our example that we don't just receive what the formal teachers say in the synagogue or in church or on your favorite preaching program or book at a Christian bookstore or from a Christian website. And we don't just take in the slogans of the day. Jesus was constantly confronting what was sort of circulating. He said, you guys have it all wrong. He was testing what was being taught and modeling for us to do the same. Almost done. Let me just say this. Every single movie you've ever watched is directed by someone with a worldview and a message. Think about a director. What does a director do? They say, this way, look over here, look at this, look at that. And they'll comment on it through their movie. 
You're being taught through the movies that you watch. Do you know that? Of course you do. But do you ever take time to like really test it? Oh, that made, that made it just feel so good. That has a way of sort of seeping in. You'll find yourself like quoting ideas from a movie you watched a few days ago subconsciously. You're not like trying to consciously reproduce those messages. But every movie you've ever watched has taught you. While you scroll, you're being schooled. Again, someone is creating content for you to look at. Are you testing it? You should. Test what you're seeing. Test why, why do you keep picking it up? Again, there's so much money that's gone into making this an addictive habit. I just finished a book by a guy named Jay Kim. He's a pastor at Westgate. In fact, I shot him a quick email. I'm like, thanks for your book. I finally got around to reading it. And he pointed out the statistics of, of what's going on with this. It mimics someone sitting at a jackpot thing, pulling a lever. And there's sort of like random reward that happens. And there's something in the human psyche that says, if you reach up, grab something physically or engaged, ding, 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 wait, you could look at someone doing slot machines and think that poor, sorry sap. Oh, I always feel bad for that guy. You're just addicted to gambling. I'm so much better than you. Ooh, I like that one. Same thing going on in your brain. They've cracked that code. They're like, sweet, we can make like poor sap gamblers out of everyone in their pocket. All right, one more. The people you are around are teaching you things. You ever notice how like when someone gets into a new crowd, gets into a new church, gets onto a new team, there's a certain way of doing things. You sort of acclimate to what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's expected, what can I get away with? The relationships you have are schooling you. Hebrews 5.14 is written down on your notes. I'm going to come back to it. I said it a couple weeks ago, but it says this, solid food is for the mature. Listen to this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How did Eli learn to juggle? Not by reading a book, not by memorizing a book, not by watching a YouTube video, not by me demonstrating, not by buying juggling uh, balls. He may have done all of those things, but he did it by practicing. Constant practice, you learn to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice, you learn to say, you know what, this is the time I just need to testify. Constant practice says, I need to pull back and process my life a little bit. Let me invite the band to come on up. I started this morning... With this question, what's better than a bird's eye view? And the answer was seeing things from the one who created and sustained birds and everything else for that matter. But it's actually even better than that. And we already sang it. What's better than a bird's eye view? You don't need to know what's coming around the corner. You don't need to know what's coming years from now. There's something better. It's not just seeing with God, but walking (laughs) with the one who created and sustains birds and everyone else. Church, that's the invitation we have, is to walk with the one who sees it all. Walk with the one who's working to ensure that what he began in you, this new life in Christ, he'll see fit to see it through to the very end. And that is really, really good news. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like that's true. My perception is really limited, like this picture shows. God, thank you so much for giving us what we need. Would you help us to trust 
that whatever answers we have from you, from others, from our own uh, just understanding, God, that we would learn contentment. God, we want to lean in and ask and seek and knock, but we're also content to say, Lord, you're the one on the throne. You're the one who sees it all. We trust your view of beginning, middle, and end. Part of what we sacrifice, part of what we lay down at the altar of your good and glorious cross is the right to know. God, we think of the Exodus in the Old Testament and Easter in the New Testament. Two events that if you didn't give explanation, we'd have no idea what's going on. And yet these were the massive historical events that showed what we're singing. You are working behind the scenes. You are causing all the threads to come together for our good and for your glory. God, we receive that, we rest in that, we walk in that today.